Hi, and welcome to episode two of More Queer Nymphs, a podcast examining the liminal characters of ancient mythology and questions of the body, identity, and autonomy through queer and feminist lenses. My name is Claire M. Coombe, and I'm a freelance classicist and writer. Today I'm going to be looking at the story of Callisto. I want to begin with a content warning. This story contains themes of rape, rejection, unwanted pregnancy, and child loss. If any of these topics is triggering for you, please put self-care first and switch off if you need to. Callisto's story is told widely, and with considerable discrepancy between accounts. However, some themes come through in many or all of these that are pertinent to how we might interpret this myth in our context. We should start with Callisto's origins. This is a nymph podcast, by and large, but was she a nymph? Well, not in all accounts, but in some. I tend to think of her in terms of a nymph, and she was certainly pledged to Artemis's company in the manner of many nymphs in myth. She may, however, have been a mortal princess, daughter of Lycaon, an Arcadian king, who didn't come to a great end himself. What we can conclude, however, is that, whether nymph or not, she had, like Daphne in our last episode, removed herself from the heteronormative structures of society and marriage. She's taken a vow of chastity and moves within a women-only community. I'll explore later why I think we might want to consider Callisto's identity to be queer, but whether you agree with me or not, she certainly made a decision to reject male company. And yet, like Daphne, Callisto is not safe from the predatory male gaze. She's seen by Zeus, and indeed Ovid in the Fasti relates rather like he did with Daphne, that it's Callisto's prettiness that causes her problems. She would have kept her vow were she not so attractive. It's notable that Ovid makes Callisto the subject in this line, not mentioning that she's deprived of agency over her body and her vow through her rape. Zeus, the king of the gods, will feature frequently in these episodes as the worst of the divine serial rapists, and in this story he is exactly that. Yet we have an unusual element in his method here, at least in some accounts. For whereas he might take human, animal or even object form to attack other women, in Callisto's case he adopts the appearance of Artemis, goddess of the hunt and virgin leader of Callisto's company. Now, I think there needs to be caution here in terms of what we say about Zeus's transformation. I want to make it completely clear that there are no grounds here for using this myth to feed abhorrent and unfounded fears about trans women in women's spaces. Zeus is a manipulator and practised rapist who dons the appropriate guise to lure his victims. He's a predatory man disguised as a woman, but it is a unique instance. Some of his other forms are rather odd, admittedly, as we'll doubtless discuss again. The allure of a swan to Leda, a bull to Europa, and so on. However, the form of Artemis is only used on this one occasion, and he transforms himself in this way because he knows that this is what Callisto wants to see. It's only different from any other trick to make his victims vulnerable, because in this instance, Artemis is Callisto's desire, and this transformation is therefore unique. Now, the Roman poet Statius does make comparison with other cases of transvestitism and gender fluidity, but he is using this in a very specific way. In his text, it's all about helping Achilles' mother convince Achilles to dress as a girl 
in order to hide on the island of Skyros and avoid his fate at Troy. Stacia's other examples are Dionysus and his gender-fluid appearance, Heracles, made to dress as a woman in the penal service of Omphale, and Kynaeus, whose gender switched from woman to man and back again. Achilles, in a narrative that's supposed to demonstrate the reassertion of his stifled masculinity, which will prepare him for his great role as a warrior, rapes Deodemia in this disguise, but that wasn't the purpose of his original decision to dress as a woman. So Zeus's action doesn't share any direct parallels with these other instances of ancient cases of men disguised as or transformed into women. His disguise is not that of a woman, but of Artemis specifically. Artemis is not merely a woman in Callisto's mind, but her leader and patron, somebody who she trusts. I see in this situation a case of queer attraction. Only if Callisto was specifically attracted to, perhaps even in love with, Artemis, would it benefit Zeus to appear as her, since the story shows him using this form in order to be able to have sex with Callisto, not merely to enter her space. It's important to note that many narrators of this myth exclude any reference to Zeus appearing as Artemis, and it reaches its fullest account in Ovid, centuries after the first tellings. I believe this stresses that it's most significant that Zeus is a male rapist of women, not what his method is. But if we do look at the myth with the Artemis disguise in mind, we see further levels to his vile behaviour. Firstly, we have the complex question of consent in any fantasy of body swapping or appearance stealing. Although gods appearing in the form of others, especially trusted mortals, is common enough in myth and epic, it's rarely discussed in terms of the impact on those whose identity has been used. Readers and viewers of modern fantasy and science fiction are probably more attuned to the complexities, but I do think there's an assault, albeit one step removed, on Artemis here, since her identity is essentially stolen to provide the mask of a rapist. Worse still, this rapist is her own father, for she and Apollo are the children of Leto, Zeus's early lover. So, to return to the adamant assertion that the risk women, cis or trans, face from dangerous and manipulative men has no relevance to the imperative of accepting trans women in women's spaces, so Artemis should be recognised as a victim rather than in any way associated with the actions of Zeus done in her body or name. We also have the rather more appalling question of consent from Callisto, because I think we can see a version of this in which she might be believed to have thought herself consensual, as long as she believed that Artemis was her lover. The physics of Zeus's transformation is unclear, but we might assume that she only discovers his true identity at the point of penetration, or in some accounts even of the pregnancy itself, basically believing up until then that she'd had sex with Artemis. Not only, therefore, do we see in this an assault on her body, but also a form of gaslighting, combined with an obliteration of her queer sexuality through its abuse by Zeus. You'll have gathered from all that that Callisto does indeed fall pregnant, as those raped by gods often do. This, in turn, leads to a further horrific aspect of this story. Most accounts have a turning point, when it finally becomes impossible for Callisto to conceal her pregnancy from Artemis. Generally, this is when she is instructed to undress and bathe, and her body is revealed. Now, having mentioned that we should count Artemis among the victims in this story, this makes her no less a perpetrator of some of the worst behaviour against women. 
there are lots of problems with Artemis from a feminist perspective. On the one hand, the fact that she leads, protects and empowers a group of women who've rejected control of the patriarchy is undoubtedly in her favour. However, the constraint she then places on their bodies is in and of itself an act which seems to model patriarchal power. The daughter, in perhaps an act of rejection of her father's characteristics, in fact models him in an inverted context. She's a supporter of women on her terms alone, including, perhaps most obviously, their maintaining of a vow of chastity. Instances of rape make no difference to her. She seems to adopt the misogynistic view that women who are raped are somehow to blame. I'm also decidedly uncomfortable with the pressure that Artemis places on Callisto to reveal her naked body against her will. Consent and manipulation of the power dynamic between leader and follower are more than evident here. Artemis's gender does not, in and of itself, make her a feminist, nor an ally of women. That she adopts a model of power that reminds us of Zeus and toxic masculine characteristics is important in reminding the reader that women achieving power is not necessarily a sign of feminism making progress if their only path to it is to adopt the worst male traits. I would make this point to anybody who claims that the UK having had two female prime ministers means that the need for feminism is dead. Looking at those two female prime ministers, I would say they prove that feminism has a fucking long fight ahead. Artemis not only blames Callisto for her rape and pregnancy, she also casts her out of the community. This rejection is a potent reminder that lack of acceptance for women who fall pregnant, even as a result of rape, remains prevalent among conservative families. For me, I find it worse still that the group from which Callisto is evicted was chosen family, a group in which she'd put misplaced trust. None of the other nymphs seem to defend her, at least in terms of trying to prevent her punishment. There are three key plot points that occur in almost all accounts of Callisto's story, but the details of these vary. Firstly, she has a baby, whose name is Arcas. She's also transformed into a bear, either before or after giving birth. And finally, she's transformed into the constellation of Ursa Major, the Great Bear. The remaining parts of her narrative are bad enough, but the way in which they come about is worse, although the accounts have different perpetrators. To begin with, we have a number of possible agents for her transformation into a bear. In none of the accounts is this something to which she consents. Probably the least common account has her turned into a bear by Zeus, in a variant of the myth where Hera catches him in the act of assaulting Callisto, and he makes her a bear to hide his guilt. We might also claim that he's protecting her, but if so, we have a typical act of a man setting out to protect a woman from suffering he's caused in the first place with the end result that she suffers loss of autonomy and self, as represented by Callisto's loss of her human or nymph form. In other accounts, the transformation is affected by Artemis, a worsening of her punishment of Callisto. But probably best known is the version where Hera makes Callisto a bear. Hera, Zeus's wife, is another secondary victim of his serial rape behaviour. But it can be a struggle for us to feel sympathy for her, Undoubtedly, her suffering through his infidelity does contribute to her vindictive and cruel character, but it is hard to see this as justification for the punishments she's known to inflict on his lovers and rape victims. Callisto would be a strong example of this. Hera, 
angry and jealous that Callisto attracted Zeus's attention and bore his child, used the metamorphosis for three obvious purposes. Firstly, to strip Callisto of the beautiful appearance that Zeus was attracted to. Secondly, to trap Callisto with her human mind intact, but her body now ursine. And thirdly, to put her at risk from her own kind, not least her own son and other hunters. There are strong correlations between the rape and the metamorphosis, both an assault and transformation of Callisto's body. Given that Callisto also loses Arcas in the process, she's now doubly bereft, now a representation of women whose children are taken from them by authorities against their will. There are also accounts in which Artemis plays a further role here, killing Callisto as bear with a spear or arrows, either for her own or Hera's satisfaction. If at Hera's request, we see another uncomfortable tra trait in Artemis, siding with her father's wife in harming the woman he committed adultery with, even though Hera persecuted Leto, Artemis's mother. However, the more challenging version of the myth, and the more thematically interesting, has Arcas, raised by a nymph and now a young hunter, or in some accounts, king of Arcadia, encountering his mother and killing her himself, even as she recognises him through her bare eyes. We might believe as well that he recognised her, um, and if so, there's a greater pathos still to this tragic ending. Callisto has suffered the loss of her child, only to be reunited with him in a way that highlights the impossible distance the gods have placed between them with their tricks. A mother-child embrace is replaced by the mother's death at the child's hand. But it's not quite the end of the story. Whichever version has made Callisto a bear, and whoever it is who spears her, or tries to spear her, Zeus isn't quite done with her yet. Callisto and Arcas are set among the stars, the constellations of Ursa Major and Ursa Minor. Although Hera sees this as Callisto gaining divine triumph, and her husband choosing to overrule her decision to deprive Callisto of her body by giving her instead a divine body, she isn't done with her rival yet. Hera's pettiness extends still further, though we might blame Zeus here for what might just as much be seen as an attack on Hera's authority as it is a favour to Callisto and Arcas. So Hera won't allow the stars to set, and instructs Tethys to prevent the ocean reaching them at the horizon. An ideology for the position of the stars, but also one last kick at poor Callisto. So I guess this myth reads as yet another reflection on the exclusion and violation of liminal figures and of women, but in this case, it's perpetrated by women with power as well as men. It's a useful metaphor for a world that persists, but can yet change. I've been Claire M. Coombe, and this was episode two of More Queer Nymphs. Thank you for joining me. You can find out more about my writing, including myth retellings, on my website, clairemcoombe.com, and you can follow me on social media at Claire M. Coombe. More importantly, you can follow More Queer Nymphs on Facebook, Instagram, and probably most of all Twitter at More Queer Nymphs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and review. It helps other people find it. Join me in two weeks' time when I'll be talking about Lamia. And now, here's a song about Callisto. Thanks and goodbye.
Oh, oh, oh.